0: subject of this talk is the (coughs) pagan origins of Christianity, and I put the expression pagan origins in inverted commas. What this talk is about (coughs) is the Muslim attempt to prove that the virgin birth of Jesus, crucifixion of Jesus, his atoning sacrifice, his resurrection, (coughs) the fact that he is the Son of God, all based on pagan origins. You find (coughs) a number of Muslim writings Many books uh, that Muslims have produced, they go into voluminous detail, trying to connect the Christian faith to other (coughs) sources before it, particularly pagan mythologies of Greece, Egypt, India, and elsewhere. And we're going to have a look at some of these in this talk and just see how superficial these resemblances are. But it's quite a common theme in Muslim writing, so it's important to know And you find this not only from Islam, but you find this sort of attack on the Christian faith today from all sorts of sources. And the allegation that Christianity is a paganized form of Judaism. That floating knowledge about libation sacrifices of different gods and uh, of resurrections of gods and of virgin births of gods and various things. Just simply got into the uh, (coughs) Jewish world at the time of Jesus and that it formulated a religion which was part Judaistic and part pagan. So it's important to know how to handle this and to know the answers to it. I'm going to begin with a book that was actually written almost a century ago by an Ahmadiyya writer known as Kamaluddin, and the title of his book was The Sources of Christianity. He brought this book out in response to St. Clair Tisdell's book, The Sources of Islam, and it was an attempt to sort of almost headbutt and say that if you can prove that the Quran is based on pagan sources well I can do the same with Christianity uh, from page 29 I'm going to be quoting just the beginning of this from many other things he deals with this is where the section begins on the alleged pagan origins of the Christian faith and it's quite interesting it's, uh, it's quite striking at first to just open this book and to discover the following and this is what you get told firstly Apollo the Greek god And then Hercules, the Roman god, Mithra, god of the Persians, Horus, one of the gods of the Egyptians, (coughs) famous Baal, the old Babylonian god, were all sun gods. Not one of them, all of them. And so they say this is where the idea came that Jesus was the son of God. And all of these gods, according to Kamaluddin, (coughs) born on the 25th of December, all of them are supposed to have had virgin mothers, all of them became saviors, they were resurrected, and they instituted Eucharistic meals. And you find that quite surprising, because you'd think that if that is the case, then how did Christianity manage to establish itself as such a unique religion? Uh, It would have just been easy to expose it as just another one of these pagan mythologies with all the same origins. (coughs) Uh, Let me tell you without hesitation that that is just such a generalization without evidence that he has given um, that all these gods are the same and are just sort of carbon copies, mirror images of Jesus. or the other way around, Jesus became a mirror image of them. But I want to just give you something of the background behind these particular gods and behind the thought which goes into it, and I'll do that shortly. Firstly, however, I want to emphasize to you, in contrast to this, (coughs) the whole distinction between Christianity and the pagan mythologies of the day. Firstly, when the Christian faith was founded in the early centuries, uh, you found that its opponents just did not charge the early Christians of preaching paganism. Uh, There were some later on in the uh, Roman Empire who did once Christianity became well established around the second, third century after Christ. But at the very beginning, when Paul and when others went across Europe and went into Egypt and elsewhere and spread the Christian gospel, the one thing that was not leveled against them is that they were just bringing another paganistic religion, that all they'd done now is whereas you had Greek mythology and you had Egyptian mythology and so on, now you were bringing a new kind of Jewish mythology. Even they recognized the people of those countries that this was something very new that the Christian uh, message <coughs> was bringing to them, and they accepted and didn't like it, but they accepted the fact that it had a Jewish origin, not grounded in paganism, they were always accusing Paul and others have been Jews who were bringing their doctrines there, as you find in Acts 20. That was the case against them. Not preachers of paganistic ideas, but Jews. And they recognized that this was a unique teaching arising out of Judaism alone. And therefore, too, you find that in the early centuries, the Christian church was at odds with paganism. This was one of the reasons why it was opposed so relentlessly by the Romans. Because the Christians refused to worship the pagan gods. What difference would it have made if the story of Jesus was just a reflection of the same story of Apollo, the Greek god, or Hercules, the Roman god? Uh, really just swapping one image for another, but the form would have been the same. No, the uh, Romans themselves realized that the Christians had a very different form of worship. That Jesus was a unique personality and the worship offered to him was totally unique and stood in sharp contrast to and in opposition to the pagan religions of the day, and that's why they feared it. They felt it would displace um, paganism, especially European paganism, and after 400 years that is exactly what it did. When Christianity became the state religion of Rome near the end of the 4th century after Christ, it finally subdued pagan religions completely. Constantine was the first Roman emperor to give some legal credibility to him, His son, the next emperor, tried to re-establish paganism, but after him, it was a formality that the Christian faith took over and literally uh, annihilated paganism. Those religions died under the force and the onslaught of the Christian faith. In Acts 19, verses 23 to 41, you have an occasion in the Gospels where you can see exactly how pagans reacted to the early Christian message. Uh, There was a man who was fashioned idols of Otimus, the great goddess of the Ephesians. His name was Demetrius, and he lived in Ephesus. And when Paul Paul and Silas came into Ephesus and began to preach the Christian gospel, Demetrius gathered some of the other tradesmen around him, and he said, You've listened to this man, Paul, and you've heard what he has got to say. And he's going around preaching that our gods are no gods. That is verse 26. And he's bringing a new belief and a new teaching. And if he prevails, he says, the great goddess Artemis of the Ephesians is going to be deposed from her magnificence. And by the way, we're going to have some business problems as well. Uh, I'm not quite sure whether it was the former or the latter that really concerned him most, back pocket or the god he was worshipping. But his whole aim was to try to stop the onslaught. And if you carry on and you read that passage, you find that he started, uh, Demetrius started a whole riot in the city. Eventually the magistrates came out. Um, if you know the book of Acts, eventually it all calmed down and quietened down when uh, one of the chief men of the leaders in the town just told them, please, these men have not reviled our goddess. Uh, you know, let them alone. Just now the Romans are going to charge us with rioting and we're all going to be in serious trouble. But you can see the point in the story is very clear. That the people who were the architects and the the real sort of uh, figureheads of pagan religion in Europe saw the Christian gospel as a totally alien form to them, an alien form of religion which, if followed, would soon knock their religions out so i can 't really find any similarity between uh, paganism in Europe uh, and Christianity, and as I said to you, it is actually the division between Christianity and these pagan religions that led to all the persecutions and the martyrdoms that followed because they would n- also not worship the emperor of Rome but nor would they worship his gods. And You know from Nebuchadnezzar and others that uh, emperors take exception when you don't worship their gods because in what they know perhaps at the depth of their being is the God is just a symbol of the emperor's own hegemony and domination. What struck the world at that time was the difference of Christianity, not its similarity with any pagan religions. And I think anybody today knows that if you study the pagan religions of old, you can see that there's just no comparison between them and the Christian faith. Paganism is based on an antitheistic attitude. It's the worship of the creature rather than the creator. Christianity is based on a living faith in the faithful creator. That's the core foundation of the Christian faith. And the two clashed with each other and always will whenever they come into contact contact with each other and into opposition with each other. And I might say to you that if you study any book like LaRousse, you know, Encyclopedia of Mythology, and you go into the history of these different religions, you find that these gods were not only dissimilar to Jesus, but they weren't even similar to each other. Uh, what Kamaluddin is doing is just producing a very convenient argument and putting them all in the same basket and just painting them of the same colour and trying to therefore build up a case against the Christian belief that Jesus was the unique Son of God. What gets converted to a virgin birth similarity is actually something different which was reasonably common to the pagan religions. In their day there was a strong belief and it tended to sort of float across all the different pagan religions at the time in the sort of source of Mother Earth. They used to look at the world, they looked at the earth beneath, and they realized that this was where all their sustenance and life uh, came from. And and the water, the plants, the rivers, the the food, the fruit, the the vegetables, just about everything they realized came from plant life. So they they didn't necessarily worship, but they honored, they venerated, and they believed in Mother Earth. And she was the one who they believed gave birth to the life that filled the plants and therefore on which they fed. But it's a, it's a real stretch to try and compare that to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the single birth of an individual from a virgin mother. Secondly, you find that the resurrection that is supposed to be paralleled in these pagan religions is based on something totally different. Um, the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened once. It was an individual who was dead, who came back to life, never to die again. Pagan mythologies went back, of course, again to the ground, because in those days there were agricultural communities, they were rural communities. We didn't have the urbanization we have today. <clears throat> and they realized just how they depended on the weather, on the sunshine, and on the land for their sustenance. Something we in our age, just in passing, tend to forget. It's one of the causes of global warming and things like that. In those days, they were very aware of the value of the environment around them to their well-being. But what they noticed was that the sun would move. It would move southwards um, from about the middle of June to the middle of December. And it would reach a sort of low point, somewhere around the 25th of December. And they were believing that the sun was actually fading and dying. And they had this conviction, many of the pagans, that you had to have a ceremony to help the sun to revive. So around the 25th of December, they had these revival ceremonies. And, and they would sing and they would do whatever they did to help the sun to revive. And then, of course, they would notice that the sun slowly started to strengthen again as it came back. So the la- uh, land became more fertile and the earth brought forth its fruit again, and they were very relieved, and they'd have festivals to praise the gods for coming back, and when the sun got back to a peak around the equinox in, of summer in uh, the northern hemisphere, around the uh, 22nd or 23rd of June, then they were very happy that, that the god had managed to revive. Now, that's what uh, Kamaluddin is referring to, but that's not a resurrection. It wasn't that the sun got resurrected, uh, all that happened was was that the sun revived and it was an annual thing and it happened all the time and this was why these people even with some of these gods sort of venerated them in that context it was a sort of typical rotation of the annual cycle of naturalism that these people believed they had to somehow maintain you can't help wondering if they didn't Somebody doesn't have the idea and say to them just one year, why don't we just stand back and do nothing and see if the sun can look after itself. It might come back anyway. It seems to do so with such precision and with such regularity every year. But in those days, uh, human paganism and human superstition was something you can be glad you're freed of today. You can raise an argument that Christmas is based on this. Uh, that we have to concede. Um, It does appear that the early church and in various parts of Europe, uh, once they became Christians, didn't want to let go of their annual calendar and their ceremonies, and that December the 25th became a very convenient day for the birth of Jesus, whereas it had previously been looked on as the rebirth day, not a resurrection, but the rebirth, the regeneration of the Son God. It was very easy to convert that to the birth of the Son of God. That you can do. But that's got nothing to do with New Testament Christianity. We don't know when Jesus was born. We don't know what day of the year he was born. Uh, This is something that goes back to Christian tradition. But the actual original conception of Jesus as the Son of God and the resurrection of Jesus recorded in the Scriptures are just based on a historical fact of a unique event that happened in one particular moment of time, never to be repeated and never preceded. What always amuses me, when you read Muslim books like this is to find that other Muslim scholars do the opposite of Kamaluddin and it's useful to know what they do because you get a writer like Abdul Haq who wrote a voluminous work called Muhammad in World Scriptures in three large volumes he goes out of his way in fact to show parallels between Muhammad and some of these pagan gods before him and for some reason thinks he's doing the Prophet of Islam a great favour and giving him a bit of extra dignity I'm going to quote from volume 1 of his work, page 395, and this is what Abdul Haq says. He is the son, this is Muhammad by the way, and he is the man indicating that he is the man who took color from Allah by worshiping him most ardently. As the sun is the mirror, <coughs> so was he colored with the attributes of God to the greatest human extent. Therefore in the whole kingdom of God there is only one prophet that has been addressed by God himself as the sun. O Prophet, we have sent you as a witness and a bringer of good tidings and a warner as an inviter unto Allah by his permission as a life-giving son. And he's quoting Surah 33, 45 to 46 from the Quran. He thereon goes, it's quite comical, it's almost amusing because you find that he goes on to bring 60 likenesses, no less than 60, between Horus, the god of the Egyptians, and Muhammad, not Jesus. He has no compunction in finding this comparison, and I'm not quite sure what the point of it was, but he concludes with these words. So there are 60 attributes of that son, which is prophesied in the Book of the Dead, which clearly indicates the coming of the prophet of Islam. Well, I don't know how many Muslims appreciate this sort of writing and would, would agree with this, but it's actually just doing to Muhammad exactly what Kamaluddin is doing to Jesus. It's just forcing comparisons and trying to show, in the case of Jesus, negatively, that uh, <coughs> Christian belief has pagan origins. Somehow in Islam, it somehow improves a lot of the prophet, I don't know. <coughs> but it's the same thing. The one thing, however, that really amuses me about Abdul Haq is he says diametrically on page 396, you can't compare Jesus to the sun god. <laughs> well, I don't know, leave it to the Muslims to resolve that contradiction between themselves. Then uh, Kamaluddin goes on and he says, well, you know, he, Quetzalcoatl, the god of the Mexicans, of the Mayans, going back many centuries, about a thousand years, is, is another source of Christian belief. And that the, these people, the Mayans, had a belief in a second coming of their god. And that the god was going to come back to them. He'd left them and he'd come back. You see, you know, you see where Christians get their beliefs from. Jesus going out of the world, going to come back a second time some reason, it doesn't seem to strike um, Kamaluddin that that's exactly what Muslims believe. They also believe that Jesus is going to go when he went to heaven and will come back at the end of time. Now, a Muslim writer from my own country, South Africa, ASK Jumal, wrote a book, Bible, Word of God or Word of Man, many years ago. And on page 145, he once again takes this analogy further and he says that Quetzalcoatl was a savior, this God. And that he was virgin born. Here comes that same convenient uh, comparison again. His mother's name was not Mary, but Chimalman. And that she received an annunciation of his birth. And you know, once again, there's just no justification, no evidence, no grounding, nothing. Just You're just supposed to take all this at face value. The, again, and I find it difficult to understand Muslims at this point, because this is exactly what the Quran confirms about Mary. In Surah 19, from verse 17 to 21, and in Surah 3, around verse 45, you find the Quran confirming the virgin birth of Mary, of Jesus from his mother Mary. Quite emphatically, an unmistakable language, similar to the Bible in many ways. So you just can't understand why the Muslim can't see that if you... Try to, say, draw parallels between Jesus and pagan gods and say they all had virgin births. Why this doesn't pull the Quran down with it, I don't know. But it just shows you the, the nature, almost the determination to somehow fault Christianity and you just turn a blind eye to the impact on Islam at the same day, at the same time. And what really fascinates me is the way they'll go on and say that this Mexican god fasted 40 days and was also tempted by Satan. Oh, you know, you, you just, just wonder what you're reading here. And you wonder how many other likenesses are you going to pull out of the New Testament scriptures without any kind of documentary evidence. Kamaluddin says exactly the same on page 40 of his book. Um, just to tell you a little bit about Quetzalcoatl, uh, <clears throat> this, comes, this belief in this God comes from the veneration of one of the most beautiful birds in the world, the resplendent Quetzal, which is a trogon, found in Central America, Costa Rica, and countries like that. And the whole of this religion of the Mayans and the belief in Quetzalcoatl is actually based on a unique origin of its own. There's no connection between that religion and, pagan, uh, sorry, and old world religions of any kind. It's a new world religion in which you find in uh, Mayan history. Nothing to do, nothing whatsoever to do with Christianity and the old world only discovered this when uh, people like Christopher Columbus and others came over to the new world four or five hundred years ago, not till the 16th century did they discover the Mayan people, the Mayan uh, religion, the people were gone but the religion was discovered, the knowledge of it was there, the records of it were there, (coughs) you still have Mayan temples and Mayan structures all over Central America that you can go and visit. But this God of theirs, derived from the resplendent Quetzal, was usually shown as a snake bird or a plumed serpent or even a white-haired old man, had a black body, a red face mask. It's just typical of really primitive pagan mythology again. No comparison, possibly, with the New Testament personality of Jesus. And as for the second coming, just to tell you, they didn't believe that their God had gone up to heaven and would return. They believed he'd just gone away from them for a while and would one day be recognized because he'd come back across the sea. And when some of the earliest Spanish explorers came across the sea and landed in Central America, particularly the North Coast, the Caribbean coast of Costa Rica, they all went out and welcomed them when they saw them dressed in fine clothing and uh, various sort of armaments and things that they'd never seen before. So they just automatically assumed that their God had returned to them. And you can hardly call that a second coming. And as I said earlier, difficulty Muslims have is that the overwhelming majority of Muslims in the world believe in the second coming of Jesus. When Muslims tell you that Christianity has pagan origins, uh, and just make that as a loose statement, it's well to know just how thin the evidences are that they're basing this on. Let's turn to Buddhist sources. Uh, Kamaluddin in a sh- not short of anything, this man in his onslaught on Christianity here from page 62 to 70 of the same book, The Sources of Christianity, says that he can find 48 likenesses between Buddha and Jesus. Once again, overlooking the fact that mere similarity could just be coincidence. And until you can find some independent evidence or source on which you can ground those similarities to say, this is why the one is the same as the other, nothing more than likenesses if they're there. I'll quote this to you from page uh, 61 of his book. It should not be forgotten that not only does there exist remarkable similarity between the two, that's Buddha and Jesus, but some of the parables and precepts that we find in the Gospels had been given word for word by Buddha some 500 years before Jesus. And yet not one of them is quoted in his book. Usual claims, of course, of similarities. Interesting thing. Have you ever heard Buddhists accuse Christians of being paganists? Have you ever come across Buddhists leveling against the Christian faith that our religion is dependent on theirs and that Jesus got his teaching from Gautama Buddha? Not to my knowledge. But now, Abdul Haq once again pulls the carpet out from under Kamaluddin's feet and he says the same of Muhammad, the Kamaluddin says of Jesus in Volume 3 now of his monumental work, this is page 1019, he says, The Buddha had foretold the advent of a Buddha like him. It has therefore been deemed to fit to show some similarities between the Buddha and the Prophet Muhammad. <laughs> Once again, I'm not too sure that the Muslim world be too happy to find Muhammad foretold by Buddha as another Buddha like him. But here it is, and he doesn't stop. He goes on from 60 pages to provide example after example to show that Muhammad... Muhammad was the Buddha to come, who would be the express image of the original Buddha. And he concludes, and I love this, as regards the claims of our Christian friends, it will be noted that the attributes of mayatria could not be found in the person of Christ. Well, thank you very much. We're very grateful to hear that. (laughs) We haven't ever suggested it, and we don't believe it. We're only too pleased to hear it. But there's just one little likeness here, just like the Christmas thing. There's a likeness here that needs a bit of scrutiny, because from a Christian point of view, uh, in a strange book, the Injilut Tufliya, the so-called Arabic Gospel of the Infancy, you find a statement about uh, the birth of Jesus that does have a similarity in Buddhism. Uh, Just to tell you about this Gospel of the Infancy, even the scholars, the Western scholars of uh, Oriental religion, including Christianity, are not trying to favor our religion at all, might actually be only too happy to disprove it, recognize that this book has got no credibility at all. This funny, the book only exists in the Arabic language, not in Hebrew or Greek or any other language of the Middle East. But it's got an interesting little story where it says that when Jesus was born and uh, he was lying in his cradle, he suddenly spoke these words. And in the Arabic it reads, Anna huwa Yasu ibn Allah. I am Jesus, the Son of God. The interesting thing here is that you have no similar text in the Bible at all to connect uh, with this story of Buddha who is believed to have spoken from the cradle and now also Jesus according to this Arabic gospel. But you do have it in the Quran and that's very interesting because in Surah 19 verse 30, you find that the uh, kinsfolk of Mary say to her, What have you done? This is a terrible thing. Your family has been an honorable family. How can you have a child out of wedlock? And she just points to the child in the cradle. And in, in Surah 19, uh, Jesus then speaks from the cradle and says, Inni Abdullah, I am the servant of Allah. Promptly goes on with a discourse and an essay as to what his purpose is for coming into the world. So, if anything, it's the Quran which has Buddhist dependency here, not the Bible. This story of Buddha speaking from the cradle is perpetuated in the Quran. The fact that it's applied to Jesus doesn't matter, and not Muhammad, is not the point. Jesus is regarded as a prophet of Islam. It's where the story appears. It appears in the Quran, and not the Bible. (coughs) Sinclair Tisdall says in his book, The Original Sources of the Quran, page 170, of course, Muhammad could not represent Christ as using the word which this apocryphal gospel attributes to him. For in the Quran, the divine sonship of Christ is everywhere denied. Therefore, while believing and stating that Jesus spoke when an infant in the cradle, Muhammad in his account has put into his mouth words which seem more suitable and more consonant with Islam. What he is saying is that the Quran actually is perpetuating the story not from a Buddhist origin but from the Arabic gospel of the infancy. In other words that somebody compiled that apocryphal book (coughs) as a Christian work and Muhammad borrowed from that work and uh, all he did was he couldn't take these words I am Yasu ibn Allah, I am Jesus the son of God so he puts it in a nice Islamic context, I am Abdullah, I am servant of God. But however it works out it's still the same thing. You're still tracing it back whether you trace it directly back to Buddhism or whether you take take it through that apocryphal work it all goes back to a Buddhist origin in the first place. One of the things that uh, is constantly leveled against Christians is that the Trinity has pagan origins. Uh, This is something you read in many Muslim writings. I read in one Muslim book that uh, you see it's very simple, the writer said the Jews believed in one God, the Romans believed in three gods, so the Apostle Paul found a perfect solution, one in three or three in one. (laughs) One God for the Jews, three for the Romans and the Greeks. (laughs) Sounds very uh, persuasive and plausible until you have a look at it. Um, The one thing we know about the Christian Trinity, and this is just beyond dispute, is that the author of it, the author of the Christian belief in God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is Jesus. Not Paul, not anybody else. In fact, Trinitarian emphasis is not nearly as conspicuous in the writings of Paul as it is in the teaching of Jesus. It was Jesus who said in the very last words recorded in Matthew's Gospel go out and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The most emphatic Trinitarian statement in the whole New Testament, Matthew twenty-eight twenty, comes from Jesus and not from anyone else. But let's just have a look at some of the evidences they bring up They say, for example, that the Egyptians had a belief in a triad, in a threesome. Uh, Osiris, the god, Isis, the mother god, and Horus, the sun god. Um, There's some truth in that, except to mention to you that there was more than one Horus in uh, Egyptian mythology. And there were an infinite number of gods, the names of many of which we know to this day. But these three were sort of looked at as a father, mother, child, family. Uh, totally different to the Christian concept of father, son, and Holy Spirit. I might tell you in, in another lecture that I give that in Gnosticism you find the same thing. Also this image of a father figure and a, a sort of mirror image in a mother in Barbello and then in the Christ figure, the Savior. Uh, you can certainly accuse the Gnostic writers of borrowing perhaps from Egyptian and other mythology to create their image of the father mother son triad and incidentally the Quran perpetuates that because that's how it sees the Christian trinity in Surah 4 and Surah 5 in various passages but as I said with the Egyptian triad once you start to look further into it it breaks down firstly there's no unity between these three they are three separate independent gods Um, a Muslim writer can't remember who it was but he He calls this a kind of trinity of gods. I think it's Kamaluddin. And and I smile at that because I say to myself, what on earth is a trinity of gods? (laughs) Um, But it shows you how, once you try and compare Christianity with paganism, how you start confusing your own definitions. Um, Trinity means one god in three persons. You can't have a trinity of gods. You could have a triad of gods. You could have a threesome of gods, maybe you can't have a trinity of gods. You can only have one God. The very word trinity means tri-unity, and that's what we believe. Uh, There was, I said, more than one Horus. It was Horus the Elder, Horus of Edfu, and this one, Horus the son of Isis. (coughs) Furthermore, to point out to you that the New Testament Christian writers (coughs) never formulated a doctrine of the trinity that you can track back to Egyptian mythology or any other. It took the Christian church about 300 years to codify the doctrine of the Trinity. What they saw was just a clear proclamation going right back to Jesus himself of God as Father, that was the unique new name, and then of Jesus as the Son of God and as the Holy Spirit, as the third person. And it took time for the church to come to terms with the fact that Scripture or the Christians clearly taught that there is a unity between the three and that there is a threefold unity which they eventually defined as a trinity. If it had been formulated on the basis of pagan mythology, you would have picked it up immediately and you would have been able to identify it and say like you can with Gnostic texts, that's where it came from. But then they go further and you'll find that we're told that the Hindu Trimurti of Brahma, Vishnu and Shiva is the origin of the trinity as well. Said to be found on this basis because these three have got a a sort of um, connection with each other on which our trinity is founded. Let me just say to you here that you have a pagan anachronism here because the Trimurti only first appears in late Sanskrit uh, literature and Hinduism going back to about the 5th century after Jesus. If there was any dependence here, it was the other way around. The Hindus might have taken, I don't think they did, but they might have taken the Christian trinity by which was well established in Christian theology by then. And tried to adapt their belief in a multiplicity of pagan gods as well—Vishnu, many others that uh, we know of, Krishna himself, Rama, Sita, Hanuman, Ganesh—you can name all these gods of theirs—and they just took three, and they said they are the Trimurti. But it's a—it's not a good combination, this, because Brahma in Hinduism is not a deity in the sense the others are. It's just an expression, a definition of just that eternal sort of impersonal essence of all things uh, for which you look for your ultimate unity in nirvana uh, when you finally join to it and become one with it and lose your own identity. Very sort of nebulous stuff. Uh, Similar to the pagan, and not the pagan, the gnostic belief also in an eternal sort of father figure. They just take that Father figure out of the teaching of Jesus and apply it to exactly the same thing. A figure who is otherwise totally ethereal, doesn't speak, doesn't act. He's just the absolute reality of all things and he needs mirror images to be identified. Vishnu was married to a female deity and Shiva was a, uh, the god of the Hindu Savites. So it's a little bit of a bad combination. this They don't really connect. There's no... Um, Sort a of connection between them at all that you can really uh, say that this is why you have a trimurti of them go right back into the earliest hindu literature these gods are different very very different to each other and it just seems to be in a matter of convenience to bring them together the christian trinity is unique it was never invented there's nothing like it anywhere in any other kind of literature father son holy spirit as I said, it came from Jesus alone, and had he not proclaimed it, no one would ever have seen it or believed it. Jesus taught it, and it calls, in the way he projected it, called for a response of faith to the God who is now known as Father, fully revealed through the redeeming work he does in his Son, and and known in the Holy Spirit. That is what the New Testament calls for. It doesn't call for a doctrinal assent to a doctrine of a threefold sort of triad of Christian belief. Let me come close now to the conclusion of this talk and say to you where Christianity does have its roots. I can tell you there's only one root of Christian belief and that's Old Testament Judaism, nothing else. I had an interview uh, in my home country South Africa a few years ago with someone I know quite well in real estate and we had a Christian minister with us and we were just talking on this line of a program that had been on television the night before where they were trying to again do the usual thing, bring comparisons between Christian belief in Jesus and pagan mythologies and so on. And he just laughed it off uh, because I'd made a negative comment about it a friend of mine just said to me, but isn't that true? I mean, it's so obvious there were libation sacrifices, there were resurrections, there were all these things. He said, uh, isn't that true? And I don't want to repeat what I said earlier about the fact that uh, uh, there was a different uh, support basis entirely that the pagans had for their belief in rebirths, every equinox of the sun and so on. That had nothing to do with the resurrection of Jesus or virgin birth or anything else. And I said to him, <clears throat> and aggressively so because it's very easy to show this, that everything Christians believe about Jesus Christ is not something we just derived even from him alone. It was specifically foretold centuries beforehand. The virgin birth predicted in Isaiah 7.14. Behold, an ulma interpreted uh, directly as virgin in the uh, Septuagint. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Um, argument against that sometimes goes that the word al-ma means a young woman but it's a sign that would be given to them and it clearly means a woman who in normal circumstances not bear a child. A young woman meaning one normally not in a position yet to bear children, not married according to Jewish tradition. And That's why Septuagint took it over without any hesitation as virgin and the New Testament does the same. This text is quoted in Matthew 1.23. Crucifixion of Jesus, many of the factual details of it were foretold centuries earlier. Psalm uh, 22, Psalm 69, two obvious examples, words that Jesus spoke from the cross, um, things that people said in Psalm 22, the chief priest stood by mocking him, he saved others, he cannot save himself Littlely were they aware that they were fulfilling what was written in Psalm 22. In Isaiah chapter 53, the most famous of the Old Testament predictions of the coming of Jesus, you find the, not only the crucifixion clearly foretold, but you find the purpose of it. He makes his soul an offering for sin, Isaiah says. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Clearly foretold, his resurrection foretold, uh, he will see the fruit of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Uh, the fact that when Joseph of Arimathea came and asked for his body for Pilate and was buried in his tomb rather than just thrown into the pit reserved for criminals who'd been executed, Isaiah says they made his grave with a wicked and a rich man in his death. Clear prediction in fine detail of every purpose for which Jesus came. And what I love about Isaiah 53 uh, is that it is just so specific. You know, in wartime, you use codes and things so that the enemy doesn't know what you're doing and doesn't understand your transmissions. But sometimes in wartime, you have to send a message in plain language. And if you've seen the film, Sink the Bismarck, at one point when the British uh, were looking for the Bismarck and trying to attack it before it could reach France and put it out of action, um, they found the HMS Sheffield and uh, there was a bit of a miscommunication somewhere, and the swordfish from an, a British aircraft carrier, the Ark Royal, started attacking that ship instead, thinking it was the Bismarck and that there were no other ships in the area. And somebody back at headquarters got a message from the Sheffield, what on earth's going on? And uh, they had to quickly send a message to the pilots <coughs> saying, stop your attack immediately. And the commander at the time said, send it in plain language. Meaning doesn't matter that the enemy knows what we're doing. Doesn't matter that they're working out what's happening. In stopping what's happening is infinitely more important, and that's what Isaiah 53 is. It's plain language. I've just given some of it to you. You can read it through uh, for yourself, but it doesn't need interpretation. I remember when I first read this passage in the early days of becoming a Christian believer, and I was stunned. I almost thought some. Christian scholar must have got hold of the Jewish scriptures and interpolated this book. How did they ever manage to get predictions of the death and the resurrection of Jesus into Jewish scriptures so specifically? They can't be missed. They're not even written cryptically or requiring any kind of interpretation or any kind of allegory, nothing at all. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, but we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. All oh, we like sheep have gone astray. It was these words that struck me. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I was stunned. I said, how could you get a scripture 700 years earlier which could predict something so specifically, and the people couldn't see it? Well, the point is that you can see that Christianity has its roots in Judaism. The interesting thing is that when the disciples of Jesus uh, saw him rise from the dead and began to proclaim his resurrection, they didn't go to the pagans of Egypt or anywhere to proclaim that because they thought it would be acceptable there, because it was adaptation of their religious beliefs. It wouldn't be hard to convince them to believe it. No, they went right back into Jerusalem where Jesus had been condemned and crucified and they confronted the Jewish people, They went right in where the priests were. They stood face to face with them and said, You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. And all their sermons work on this basis, that Jesus was a fulfillment of prophecy. God raised him from the dead and made him manifest, not to all the people, but to us, who witnessed to his resurrection from the dead. And so it becomes quite clear that the whole crucifixion The virgin birth of Jesus, his resurrection, have their roots in Old Testament Judaism, in prophecy, and not in any other pagan religion. That's where they derived. Throughout the New Testament, you find anything up to 200 to 250 quotes from the Old Testament backing up the Christian message. You won't find any reference of pagan gods in there there's only one remote reference to a pagan god in Paul's sermons and uh, in Acts 17 that he quotes when he says in him we live and move and have our being and so on referring to a uh, pagan text which refers to Zeus and Paul was merely likening what pagans believed about Zeus as the uh, or or even an unknown god that they worshipped in Greece at the time merely likening that to what what we know about God personally. that's as far as it goes. There was nothing. You don't find anything in, in the New Testament anywhere where you can link it to a pagan God, a pagan scripture, a pagan text, a pagan worship, and say that that's where the early Christians got their belief in Jesus from. But you can write big, thick books. You can write volumes of books from the New Testament showing how the early Christians rooted everything they taught about Jesus. His birth, his uniqueness, the fact that he was the Son of God from Old Testament Prophecy and predictions. In closing, within less than four centuries of its inception, the son of a carpenter, crucified for a crime he didn't commit, conquered the whole of the Roman Empire. All of its pagan religions, all of its pagan gods, just wilted in the face of his message. Nothing more than that, just a word. And from the time Paul and Silas first went into Asia Minor, and went across to Greece and other parts and began to proclaim the gospel to the time when constantine first took the initial steps to make christianity the state religion of rome in that time the christian gospel displaced all the pagan religions of its day the egyptian mythology greek mythology roman mythology they were literally annihilated and christianity remains the religion of europe to this day so muslims claim that we have pagan origins I assure you they have a very difficult case to prove.